We're going to turn in God's word uh, to Mark 11. Mark 11. And we're, we're really only focusing on verses um, 15 to 19, but we're going to take time to read from the beginning of Mark 11 just to set the scene and the context for us. So if you're able to stand for the reading of God's word, let's do that together as we come under the word of God today. So Mark 11, and you can follow along as we read. This is the word of the Lord Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a coat tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If any of you say, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a coat tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the coat? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the coat to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. On the following day, when they came to Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd were astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Amen. And we thank God for his word to us. Amen. You may be seated and we're going to have a prayer together. <clears throat> Speak, Lord, in the stillness while we wait on thee. Hush our hearts to listen in expectancy. 
for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. I don't know if any of you here have gone to build a house or you have made plans to build a house. You know there's a lot of things that go into it. But the main thing you know whenever you go to build a house, which uh, we have never done, I don't know if maybe we'll ever do, um, but there always has to be a plan, doesn't there? There has to be a purpose in mind. Otherwise, it'll turn into maybe a chicken shed or something like that. Unless you've got a purpose in mind of what you want this house to be. But I want to ask this question. If Jesus were to build a house, what would it look like? What would it look like? Now, we're not talking about bricks and mortar here, are we? We're not talking about a, a physical building here, four walls, a roof, etc. But we're talking here of what we've read about here in Mark's gospel and what Jesus, of course, had said about building his church, that Jesus was building a house and this house would be a house of prayer. The house of prayer. So what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, let, let's look at the big picture here, or the context. I think it was G. Campbell Morgan who said, a text without a context is only a pretext. So we've got to look at the big picture. And so chapter 11 here that we read, and into chapter 12, this is what began the Jerusalem days of Jesus. Jesus is on his way to Calvary. This is what one commentator talked about, the, the, the coronation of the true king. We're going to have that now this year, the coronation, King Charles. Well, this here was the, the coronation in the sense of the true king, Jesus on his way to Jerusalem. And at the beginning, we read of these two disciples that Jesus, in a sense, calls on a mission. And this mission of faith is at the master's call. The master's call. We read, Jesus said in verse 2, go to the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a cold tide on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. And so this is direct prophecy there in Zechariah, Zechariah 9 and 9, of course, of what was taking place here with Jesus' call to go and get this young coat. And they went on the authority of Christ. They went on the authority of the king, to go, and, and we, we read this powerful phrase of Christ in verse 3, where he says, When they ask you, What are you doing? What are you doing with this donkey? Here is what Jesus said You tell them this, the Lord has need of it. Now, there's a sermon in itself, isn't it? The Lord has need of it. And folks, this is the issue in a sense right here at the beginning of our passage. And it sets the scene for what we're looking at here this morning. Because at the beginning here, Christ's authority is exercised. But when you close, when you come to the end of Mark's gospel, what happens? Jesus' authority is challenged. So it's almost like this sandwich at the beginning, he, his, his authority is exercised. The Lord has need of it. But verses 27 to the end, you can read it yourself. You see how his authority was challenged. And folks, I believe that is the same dilemma in a sense we are facing in the church 
and in the world today, when people are presented with the claims of Christ, with his rule, with his reign, with his kingship, instead of bowing to him, instead of submitting to him, they challenge his authority. The fists are up, as it were. They said, well, why are you doing this? Who gave you this authority? Who, who are you or what right have you to rule over my life? And in a sense, even a sadder reality is this, that even those who claim the very name of Christ over their lives can lose sight of who is building the house. They want to take charge. They, they lose sight of the purpose of the house, that it is to be a place of worship, of prayer, and in a sense, all of this, like we're going to look later, all of this rises and falls on this question, who's in charge? That's really the, the, the question we ask at the beginning. Who's in charge here? Who, who's calling the shots? If I could use that phrase. And this is the foundation that's being laid. It's building up a house. This house to be a house of prayer. As Jesus says, I will Build my church. He is the authority. He has the right. He is the Lord. He is the king. And this is what he wants. This is what he wants. It is to be a house of prayer. First thing I want us to look at here this morning. If you're taking notes, you can uh, jot this down. I want us to look at the purpose of of the house. The purpose of the house. I might go through all of this bottle by the time we're finished, uh, by the way. You know, every house, in a sense, has a purpose. A purpose in mind. The place that you're going to live, the rooms that you're going to have if you're building a garage, and so on. There's a purpose in mind whenever someone goes to build a house. And in a sense, this is no different. I was no different there in the time of Jesus. Here with the temple, it was the same. Even in the time of Moses, when the tabernacle was instituted, this was to be a meeting place of God. The meeting place of God. Both the tabernacle and the temple built by Solomon. And of course, we see this in the three Synoptic Gospels, if you've heard that phrase before, and that's basically Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And in all of the three Gospels here, Jesus makes reference to the fact that his father's house was to be called a house of prayer. And this taken from that prophecy there in Isaiah 56, if you want, you can turn to it. We've, we've been going through Isaiah of course, and really benefiting from that time. But there in Isaiah 56 and verse 7, well, let me read verse 6 of Isaiah 56. And again, you'll see exactly where Jesus' statement comes from as he, as he entered into the temple that day. Isaiah 56, and the foreigners who join themselves to Yahweh, to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of Yahweh and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain 
and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. So there in that prophecy of Isaiah, we have other things mentioned, don't we? It talks of sacrifice, it talks of offerings, it talks of music. And all these, of course, mentioned there in the worship of Yahweh. And of course, are they not the purpose of the house? The sacrifice, the offerings, the music, and so on. Yes, we know those were included. When the foreigners would come in, if they would believe and trust in the one true living God in Yahweh, they too could experience this salvation, just as the Gentiles could enter in. If they would look to the one true living God. Now, all these things were important in the worship of Yahweh. But all too often, just as we encounter here in Mark 11, a lot of these things could show what man could do for God rather than what God could do for men. And that is prayer. It's showing how great our God is. That's why the psalmist in Psalm 40 and verse 6, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not require, but you have given me an open ear. God delights, the scripture says, to hear the cry of his people. And in a sense, God is waiting. He's waiting to hear his people cry out to him. So if this is the purpose of the house As Jesus reiterated this prophecy of Isaiah, if this is to be the purpose of the house, a house of prayer, then folks, what are we playing at? What are we doing? If this is meant to be the purpose. You see, when Jesus went into the temple that day, he expected to see prayer. But he didn't. And that was true throughout Jesus' ministry because very often, what did he say to his disciples? Three words. When you pray. Are you awake? (laughs) When you pray. Not if you pray. Not if you would like to pray. Not if you have been to Bible school and three theological degrees, then you can go and pray. No. He says, when you pray, there's no optional extra. It's not a tag on at the end or the start of a service. When you pray, it's a given. That's why the hymn writer put it so well when he said this. Prayer is the soul's sincere desire, uttered and unexpressed. The motion of a hidden fire that trembles in the breast. Prayer is the Christian's breath. Just as you take a breath in the morning, well, you have a breath through the night too, otherwise you're kaput, right? (laughs) But you need it. What do you do without breath? There's no breath, there's there's no life. 
And that is true of prayer. There is no prayer. There is no life for the believer, for the church. And this was to be the purpose. It was to be expected. And when we pray, and when we are a people, and when we are a church of prayer, what we're doing is this, folks. And this is related to our context. We are putting ourselves under the authority of Christ when we are a people of prayer. But if we don't, we are putting ourselves above Christ's authority and we're on dangerous ground. We're saying, I'll build it my way. I'll build it my way. That is why we see here such similarities with the cursing of the fig tree that we read, verses 12 to 14. Because as Jesus was on his way to the temple, we're told that he was hungry. He sees this fig tree. And there's activity. Just as there was when he went to the temple. There was lots of commotion. There was lots of activity. Summer was coming. Just like the fig tree. And maybe even, as one of the commentators talked about, maybe there was even suggested productivity. Maybe there was even suggested productivity. When it says when he came, he found nothing but leaves. There was leaves. But yet there was no fruit. No provision. And folks, what an indictment it was to those religious leaders that day. When Jesus went into the temple. There was activity. There was even suggested productivity but without provision. No fruit. And you know, we have never been in a state in the church today, now in 2023. We have never been in a position where we have more books, we have more programs, we have more coaches, we have more mentors, we have more internet sensations, and the list could go on and on, yet so often we come up empty, having no fruit, no growth, no real spiritual maturity, no true conversion, no genuine repentance, and the list could go on and on and on. And I ask why? And folks, I have to tell you, when I preach this sermon to you today, I'm preaching this a hundred times to myself. And I ask myself, Timothy, why? Why are you not seeing that growth and that maturity and that fruit in your own life? I believe so often, it's like we've said, we've missed the purpose. We've missed the purpose of the house. It's to be a house of prayer. Prayer that is expected. Jesus expected, he expected fruit on that fig tree, but there was none. He expected to see prayer when he went into that temple, but there was none. Prayer should be expected. Prayer that is learned and prayer that is answered. Do we believe in a God who answers prayer? C.H. Spurgeon put it well. And by the way, we don't take our theology from C.H. Spurgeon. But he said this, where God leads you to pray, he means you to receive. Was he Pentecostal? 
No. He was biblical. Folks, God does not mock you when he calls you to pray. Did you know that? He does not lead us to prayer. He does not say when you pray and just shut the doors. It says the Puritan spoke of the fixed eternal law of the kingdom. Matthew 7, knock, ask, seek, knock. That's why later on in verse 24, Jesus said, therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Folks, this isn't a name it and claim it. This isn't a health, wealth, and prosperity. This is do you believe God? That, that's it. We're not saying here, do you believe in God? Not, we're not even saying, do you believe about God? Do you believe God, period? It rises and falls on that, folks. That's what prayer is to be. The purpose of prayer, secondly, and my points get progressively shorter, just in case you're wondering. The problem, the problem in the house. You know, if there's a problem in your house, especially if you're going to buy a house, a home, you want to get it checked out. You want to do an inspection to make sure that there's no issues underlying that you want to get dealt with. And in a sense, in a sense, folks, this is what Jesus was doing when he went into the temple that day. He was inspecting his father's house. He was inspecting his father's house to see the problem firsthand. And what does Jesus see? It says, it is written. Is it not written? He said, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Thieves had broken in to the house. Now this was what was known as the court of the Gentiles. You can read of that there in Matthew 21. So this wasn't actually the temple itself. This was like the outer court. This was the, the, the court of the Gentiles. So both Jews and Gentiles were allowed to be together in this area. But what do we find? Business is booming, the money is flowing, and what resembled more a marketplace than a place of worship? And again, you can look at that there in Jeremiah in the prophecy of the Lord's indictment, in a sense, against the people, Jeremiah chapter 7. So what does Jesus do? What does Jesus do when he sees what is going on? And it's interesting that we read at the end of verse 11, it says, and Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. This was earlier, the day before. And when he had looked around at everything, who, who of course, the son of God knows everything anyway, but he, he had already seen what was going on. And Jesus goes in, so what does he do? Well, we've read that in righteous anger, he puts the robbers out. He doesn't ask for a committee meeting with them. 
He doesn't say to these guys, let's sit down and grab a coffee together. Let's discuss this man to man. No. He puts them out. Get out. This is to be a house of prayer. But you've made this a den for robbers. So why could he do that? Why could you or I not do what Jesus did? Because Jesus had the full rights and authority to go in that day as the eternal son of God. Because this was his father's house. Read there in John 1, 46. Jesus had come to be about his father's business. This is why he had come. That's why as a child they found him in the temple. He was meant to be there. He had the full authority and the rights to be there. This was his father's house. So folks, it's no wonder. You might read this chapter, and of course this is the second time that this took place. This wasn't a one-off incident. It had already happened before. You'd think, have you learned nothing? But yet, Jesus went in in full authority to do what he did. You see, they were more concerned about their pockets than about prayer. They were more concerned about sales sales than they were about the salvation of souls. Could this be said of any of us? Could this be say of any, said of any church, any believer today? Listen to what God said there, Isaiah 29 and 13. You worship me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. Why? Why is that the case? Why can we sing songs of worship and praise to God and all may seem okay, but deep down it's not okay? In our hearts, we're maybe far from God. And that's why there are three things that are a problem to the Christian that will keep us from praying. And you probably know them already. And we have them in scripture. The first is this, sin. Sin. That will keep us. An unrepentant sin. That the Bible makes very clear that if we regard iniquity in our hearts, the Lord will not hear. The second thing is Satan. He, he loves, he loves in any way he can to stop us from praying. From keep us from seeking God in prayer. And there's a little ditty, a little line that maybe you've read before where it says that the devil trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon their knees. That's so true. He hates prayer. And the third thing is self. The old man that just rears its head, wanting to do it our way. Or maybe there's an unresolved issue before another brother or sister in Christ that has gone on for 5, 10, 20, 30 years. And it's like a barrier. It's like a dark, dirty cloud between us and God. 
because there's an unresolved sin, an unforgiveness that is stopping us from truly seeking God in prayer. That's why when we come to the table, one of the words is examine yourself. Well, that's two words, isn't it? Examine yourselves. Yes, this table is for sinners who know they're sinners, who know they're unrighteous and unworthy. And that's why Christ came to deal with sin once and for all. So how, how can we? How can we continue to hold bitterness and grievance in our heart when we're expecting to come to this table that Christ shed his very blood to forgive? And that's what hits hard. That's why so often there's a problem in the house. Do we leave it there? Absolutely not. We recognize where there's a problem and we resolve to act. We resolve to act and we make things right by the grace of God. And the third thing here we want to consider about this house, we looked at the purpose, the problem, but what about the praise of this house? You know, it's great whenever a home is finished, the house is complete, you go in and you see it all new, finished, painted, woodwork, all of that, and it's a credit, isn't it? It's a credit to the builder and those who worked on it. And so after Jesus had finished, in a sense, cleansing the temple, he began to teach it's interesting, we read in verse 18 that the chief priests and scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him for they feared him. Why? Because all the crowd were astonished at his teaching. So in a sense, they weren't astonished at what Christ had done by overturning the tables. What were they more astonished at? His teaching. This man spoke with authority. Zacchaeus, no one speaks like this man. With authority. They were astonished. And this is what made the impact. And they were beginning to realize that day the authority and the power that belonged to Christ. And all of the praise and all of the worship was to go back to God. It's interesting, isn't it, that we read of as Jesus entering into, sometimes we call it Palm Sunday. We speak of Jesus entering Jerusalem and they cry, Hosanna. Hosanna, which meant save us. Just the day before they cried, Hosanna. But very soon, what would they cry? Crucify him. Save yourself, Jesus. That's what they cried. Within a day. From save us to save yourselves. They didn't see their need. They didn't see this was to be their chief end. To bring all the glory and all the praise back to the Father. I grew up. Uh, Presbyterian, 
Can you just pause for a moment there? And a church where we were taught very faithfully and still the word of God. And we learned the catechism. Maybe some of you here did. And at least remembered the first. Actually, if you get the first wrong, all the rest you don't get. What is man's chief end? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. You see, God was to receive the glory. That's why he said, I will not give my glory to another. That's why when Isaiah there in in that experience where he came in, and Isaiah had this vision of the Lord high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. The Shekinah glory of God filling the temple. Because that's what it was all for. That's why Jesus, in a sense, did what he did that day. Because he realized that this was not bringing glory to the Father. His, the Father's glory was his chief concern Is it ours? Whenever we come to pray, is it on our mind? Oh God, it's your glory that's at stake. It's your glory that's at stake in the world, in the church, in our lives. But not only that God supremely, that God would receive the glory, but the second aspect of this is that people would receive the gospel. Listen again to what Jesus said. My house shall be called a house of prayer for just the people of Georgetown. No, for all, all the nations, all the nations. Again, you read it there in Isaiah's prophecy, Isaiah 56, that the very nations would be gathered in. That's what the people of Israel were to be, a light a light to the nations that they would see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. As we've often sang here the hymn, the song, let the nations be glad, let the people rejoice for salvation belongs to our God. This is what the nations need to hear. But yet we keep it within our four walls. Jesus said this is what the praise will be. It will be to the glory of God and to the extension of the gospel. But what a contrast that Jesus found because they expelled some and welcomed others. Oh, you have a bit more dough, cash. Come on, you in. And the others excluded. The people they should have been welcoming in, they excluded from that court of the Gentiles. And that's why Christ When you read it, read it again with the eyes of compassion because Christ demonstrated his compassion on those who really needed it. He said, this will be a house of prayer for all the nations. I want to ask a question as we close. Do you want to see this? Do you really want to see this in your life? Do you want to see this in MABC? Then it'll be as Hudson Taylor, the great missionary statesman used of God in China, when he wrote to Jonathan Goforth 
And if you don't know of Jonathan Goforth, you better, because he's one of the greatest Canadian exports this century, or second or third century even. And Jonathan Goforth was going into a certain province of China, and he wrote to Hudson Taylor, who he looked up to and admired as a man of God and of prayer, and he said, I, I want you to pray for us, I want you to give us advice how we go about going into this province in this part of China. And this is what Hudson Taylor wrote back. He said, if you're going to take that province, you're going to have to take it on your knees. You're going to have to take it on your knees. Yes, prayer does mean discipline. It does mean like that persistent widow in Luke 18, we're not going to give up. We're going to keep seeking. We're going to keep asking. We're going to keep knocking. For he is a God who does not mock his people when he calls them to pray. And a verse I know has been quoted many times, but it applies so well to this today. Second Chronicles 7, 14. If my people. So it's not out here that it begins, does it? It begins here. Right here. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven, will forgive their sin and heal their land. But these three words, if my people. This is the house, folks, that Jesus wants to build here. And may we be that house to the glory of God. Let's pray together before James comes and leads us. And just before we pray, could we just have a moment together to quietly in our hearts to cry out to God. <laughs> and to say, God, we need you. Because that's what prayer is, folks. It's saying, God, we need you. Lord, as we have come before you today, we realize, and I realize, Lord, we don't have it all together. We can say like the Apostle Paul, we know in part. Oh, I know that so keenly today, Lord. We know in part. But yet, oh God, as a broken people, as a people, Lord, God, that you have redeemed by your precious blood that you've called to yourself, that you've called to be a people of prayer. God, help us to be those people that realize the purpose of this house, to deal with the problems 
that need to be dealt with. And that all the praise and glory and honor and majesty and dominion and authority will go back to you, our great God, who we thank you even in 2023 is not finished with us yet. Have your way in us, we pray, God, for your glory. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen.